Welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. It is one of the marvelously crazy things about publishing that most books are published long before anyone tests whether they'll be popular. Publishers will spend small fortunes on advances, editing, design, digitization, printing and marketing before finding out if a book will sell more than a few hundred copies. I have never been a good judge of popular tastes. That lack of judgment has led to some very expensive publishing decisions in my past. And I suppose what would have been useful is some kind of window into what people really enjoy reading. Some kind of magical prototype book that will ask readers what they think of it and let me know. Of course, that's long been a holy grail of ebook publishing. Lower early production costs and an automated way to track what people read and what they enjoy. For the last 10 years, Andrew Romberg has been working on that at his company, Jelly Books. He's learned more about how to measure what people enjoy reading than anyone I know. And coming to publishing after a career in chemistry, telecoms and music, having lived and worked in Denmark, Austria, Italy, the USA, the Netherlands, Russia and the UK, he has a broad, global perspective that I find really valuable. So, I've been looking forward to asking him all about it. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me here today on the podcast. It's a pleasure to speak to you. It's my pleasure. Always fun to talk to Cape Town from London. Last time we met, we were in a coffee shop in Cape Town about 10 years ago. So our entrepreneurial journeys have covered a lot of ground in that time. Yes, January it will be in just about three months. It will be the 10-year anniversary of that meeting. That's amazing, which makes it pretty much somewhere around the 10th anniversary of Jelly Box. Is that right? That is correct. I met you, I think, two weeks after we incorporated the company. That's amazing. A long time it has been. <laughs> it has been a very long time. Before that, you worked for big companies like Shell and Skype after a PhD in chemistry from MIT. What has kept you in book publishing all this long, all this time, because it's clearly not the money. Uh, obviously not the money. That's what you are. <laughs> book publishing is a way of getting poor and not richer, I would say. <laughs> um, it's an interesting origin story how I even drifted into publishing. Before I joined Skype, I worked with a company called Gate5 in Berlin. We did location-based services on maps and there chief financial officer started a company called Texter, who did one of the first e-ink readers and the first Adobe RMSDK compatible app, so an e-book app that could handle certain types of DRM. And that's how I drifted into publishing. And after a while, I decided to do something different and strike on my own and always stayed there. And somehow publishing has never ever left me out of its clutches again. <laughs> Does that to people, it seems. Indeed. We are both members of that club, I think. Absolutely. Now, for me, it's there's always it always feels creative and the people are lovely. I can I can set the money aside because those are the rewards in themselves. So hopefully it's something like that for you. Indeed, indeed. If I compare it to the music industry where I also used to work at Receiver, I find publishing much more collegial, much more handshake-based, much more friendly in a way mm. it has in some ways had a much more stable 
business and economic environment, which is also the biggest curse because it has had the least pressure to really, really innovate. Hmm. Really interesting. Since we did have a chance to catch up recently, I want to see if I can describe what Jellybox does, and then you could tell me if I'm close and what I've missed. The way I understand it, a publisher will come to you with a book before it's been released, before that book is published, and then you'll give that book to people for free as an ebook, and in return, they let that ebook measure how they read it, they, how far they get, how fast they read, and so on. And then that data that you collect from all these people reading these these books is really useful to the publisher. I know that sounds like a simplistic summary of what I'm sure is a much more complex operation, but how close am I? Uh, quite close, although I have to say it was our second take at the company. We started that particular element in 2014, so year three of our existence hmm. uh, in a project we did for Penguin Random House and the UK government. And now it's one of five services we do, but it's certainly the best known. Hmm. It was our start in how to record reading behavior and really watch how people read, kind of stare over the shoulder while they're reading a book, so to speak, and understand are they starting the book, are they finishing the book, how do they react? Hmm. And its first commercial application for that technology was testing books before they are published. And sometimes we uh, send out books with different covers to different people, so we A-B test covers, and see how the reaction of people differs, especially books where maybe the publisher was a bit unsure what is the audience reaction going to be, but also many times who is the audience for this book, really understanding how to match a book to the audience. And that has become much, much more important. And so that was our start in data smart services. And from there, we branched out to do some other applications also that are very data and analytics heavy. So now also a bit around how do we create reviews and create feedbacks from people. We will be announcing at the beginning of November a large project we are doing here in the UK with one of the big retailers to build a cross-industry platform for ebook excerpts and audiobook snippets. And there we will also collect data and try to understand are books correctly classified, uh, what kind of books are read by the same people. So by creating a national infrastructure and seeing how people discover pe books, how they sample them, we try to understand more about the general trends while also making it easier for people to sample books. Uh, UK retailers have no equivalent to the look inside of Amazon, for example. Wow. What exactly do you measure when someone is reading a book? I know that there are a number of axes that you like to get some metrics against, uh, like the speed of reading and so on, and the velocity, which is an interesting term. Could you explain that a little bit for me? Certainly. So um, the so-called objective criteria or observational criteria we collect. So one of them is, do you actually finish the book? It's mm. quite surprising how many people will give up on a book because their attention just drifts to something else mm. or to another book. So the completion rate for a book is quite critical. And in every category or genre, you have books that may have very low completion rates and books that have very high completion rates. If there's any general tendency, it is that maybe non-fiction books are a bit more likely not to be finished. But within fiction, it's not to say that literary fiction or romance has higher or lower. It's really from book to book, huge variations. 
Velocity is something different we look at. So we look at the first day you picked up the book until the day you actually finished. So with all the interruptions included. So this is not how fast do you turn the pages, but are you glued to the book? Are you going to read through the night, so to speak? Does, does this book make you return every day? So say a crime novel that has a velocity of less than seven days. So you start and finish it in less than seven days is a real page turner. Mm -hmm. So is a book, has it such a strong narrative art that it's genuinely measurably a page turner? Yes, that can be measured. Whereas say a biography where you maybe in between go to a few other books and dip in and dip out and it takes you five weeks to finish. Hmm. Yep, it's not exactly the same page turner. And if you have a crime novel, say, where it takes people three weeks to finish it, on average, that is a big, big warning sign. <laughs> sure. Whereas for biographies, it's normal. That's amazing. And then I'm interested in this concept of cross-media testing that I've seen mentioned. How does cross-media testing uh, work? For instance, asking people what they watch on Netflix. Mm -hmm. So our service has the classical reader service has evolved with every month and year. You always hmm. come up with new ways of probing how people read and how to understand more about the audience. One of the first things we did is how often do you read in the genre and see if how the data is influenced by your genre affinity. So a um, true mass market title should be very independent of whether this is your preferred genre or not. If something is a true niche title, you'll see much higher completion rates and KPIs among genre fans, and it will perform very poorly about people outside. The next such question we did is, have you read the author before or not? To measure, is there a fan effect? Are fans more likely to finish the book? versus newcomers or not. So is the author's platform growing? Is he attracting new readers? Or is he just living off old glory? Hmm. And those were the first two questions we did. And then we started when the big debate happened, is Netflix distracting people from reading? We hmm. thought, let's ask people about their Netflix viewing habits or their TV series habits and their film habits. And in particular, we ask about series because if you watch a series, that means you're probably a fan, whereas see, having seen one movie, one off, doesn't mean <laughs> you necessarily liked it. Mm -hmm. So we very much focus on serious behavior like Netflix, but not just Netflix. We also look at TV and we ask people, what do you watch? And then we take that data and see how do completion rates, how do velocity, how do KPIs, such as how much I like the book or would recommend it to others, depend on what your cross-media affiliation is. So we discovered that some movies are very good proxies for genres. So when we test in Germany, a long-running TV series called Tatort is the perfect predictor for you liking crime. Hmm. Both in Germany, UK, and US, if you have watched one of the Harry Potter movies, you are likely to be someone who likes young adult in general. If you have seen Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, you're a fantasy fan. And we see that 80, 90% of all people who read in those genres will have seen those movies. So they become very good predictors. Hmm. And then there's the extra dimension of asking about all sorts of other more specialized movies. So in crime, we might put in things like Babylon Berlin, a series that 
in 20s uh, Berlin, so a very historic setting. Mm -hmm. You could ask about Narcos, a very brutal kind of TV show. Right. And you can see that how people read can vary greatly depending on which genre they really enjoy. So we have seen that an author we tested was much more on the brutal side of like Narcos and Miami Vice and these kinds of films. Whereas certain authors might have gone heavily in the direction of, say, Sherlock Holmes, very introvert. Mm. We had one book which was pitched as being Scandinoir. So you thought this should correlate to The Bridge or Wallander or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm. But it didn't. It correlated with Shetland, a very different kind of crime series. And interestingly, that crime series is based on the novels of Anne Cleves. So we knew that people who like this book would correlate with Anne Cleves' novels, which is the classical comparable, the comp of the industry. Now, you might wonder, why don't we ask people about other books? And what we consistently find is that readership is so diverse that if we ask about specific books, the overlap is quite small. All Everyone in the industry always thinks about other books, but we find it's much better to define it by TV habits <laughs> to really get meaningful data and good overlap. So defining audiences by their taste in movies and TV shows gives us a much better insight into how to segment audience than asking them about other books, which runs completely contrary to how people inside publishing look at books. And what decisions do publishers then make with this data? They've got this data about the correlation between reading habits and preferences and so on. What are the kinds of decisions that they make with it? So for some books, it's the decision, do we go ahead and this is the lead title and we throw a big marketing budget after it? Or is it maybe not going to be such a big hit and we give it a much more modest support both in terms of marketing and PR support. This can go up and this can go down. Sometimes we A-B test and then it's about how do we get the right kind of cover that not only makes the book be picked off the shelf, but also makes people expect the right kind of novel behind it or story. Hmm. And above all, covers that also encourage people to recommend the book to others. This mm. has been one of the surprising things we found. Everyone thinks about covers as what seduces you. But the even more important aspect of covers is, does this encourage you to recommend a book to others? Mm. We never consciously think about a cover when we recommend a book to others. But we have found time and time again that it has an immense influence on people you're just not as likely to recommend a book where you find the cover is totally ugly or misleading or suggests something other than what's inside. That's and amazing. it really dramatically reduces how people uh, recommend book, and it's immensely important. I could so see that in myself. I wouldn't want to have a book out on my coffee table when someone visits that made me feel embarrassed to have it out there. And the cover is everything in that case. I suppose the same as when you're recommending a book. And it's also interesting. We ask people, how much did you enjoy the book at, after they have finished? And we only use the data for people we can verify have finished the book mm -hmm. and ask them, would you recommend this book? And for some books, these numbers are the same. Whereas for other books, the recommendation factor is much lower than the satisfaction index. So those are the guilty reads, so to speak, hmm. very dominant in romance, even more dominant 
in erotica, as you might imagine. Right. But for example, you also see it in the crime genre. The more brutal, the more sadomasochistic or gothic it is, the more it is a guilty pleasure, what uh, Benedict Evans uh, used to call the books for my bedroom as opposed to the books for my living room. <laughs> the reverse effect can also happen where people said, I didn't enjoy that book that much, but I will recommend it. That's interesting. And that happens to certain prize winners and classical books where every, people think they ought to recommend it, but personally, they didn't actually enjoy <laughs> them at all. <laughs> Oh, yes. I've got so many of those on my shelf that I have because I think I'm supposed to have them. Well, actually, we did two years ago a few campaigns on our own initiative testing some of the classics. On the one hand, we verified what everybody thought. So the completion rates for Anna Karenina were like 3%. <laughs> but Call of the Wild, book quite old by now, mm. almost 100 years. Wow. It still gets 60 70% completion rates. At the same level, like a gone girl, basically. That's amazing. Yeah, Moby Dick to take one other, which has also a reputation of being difficult, 10% completion rate. <laughs> that one doesn't surprise me. That's a tough book. What's a bit of a breakthrough for me is realizing that this collection of data is a really good way to determine your marketing budget and where you're going to spend that marketing budget. Because as a commissioning editor publishing person, I tend to think that the data must have to inform the publishing decision. But often the publishing decision is done and publishers like to trust their gut on publishing decisions. But this is a marketing tool. And that's that's really interesting to me. It was the obvious way how we could break into the market because it was also where people were more willing to pay attention to data. Marketeers are much more data oriented. Mm. And in the early days, we had huge resistance from editors because they feared it as something that would interfere in the editorial decisions, though the tool doesn't tell you anything about you should rewrite this. Yes, we can say this ending was poor because the recommendation factor dropped like a stone because the ending was too open. Very common correlation. Hmm. But the books don't tend to get rewritten at that stage. But after a few runs, we find in most publishers that the editors come around to it because... It's kind of the equivalent of the applause in a theater or cinema. You get a feedback loop of how well it was received and above all, why it was well received. Mm. So editors take it as a cue sometimes to say, will I continue with this author and go deeper or do I drop them? But also, how do I make the next acquisition decision? Where should I focus? What were the elements? that made this book really a success because sometimes we misunderstand why something is a success. Mm. So acquisition editors often saw it as a very good tool to better understand the decisions they had made in the past so they would be better informed in the future. But data is something that informs you how to make better decisions. It does not make the decisions for you. Really, really makes so much sense. What kind of correlations, and maybe you'll have some examples, have you found between the patterns you see in the data and whether a book's going to be a bestseller? So we actually use a color code internally for blue is weak and uh, yellow is good mm -hmm. and green very good and purple excellent. Um, we don't have bad books, only weak books. Sure. And if a book has a certain constellation of these parameters, we can, with some confidence, predict 
that if it is in the hands of a good marketing team and with enough support, it will hit the top 10. So both in Germany and the US and the UK, we have consistently seen uh, that happen. The criteria uh, for fiction is completion rates have to be over 50%. A book that doesn't hit that will not take off, Mm. uh, generally speaking. You need a satisfaction index, which is a form of the net promoter score, over 50 points. So at least half the readers must say, I really absolutely enjoyed the book. Uh, The recommendation factor has to be such that at least 40% of people said, I will definitely recommend this to others with not too many detractors. And you need a cover match factor of over 30 points. So it has to be at least a reasonable match. Hmm. You can have books where everything else looks great and you can ruin a bestseller with the cover. Wow. And do you A-B test the covers? Not all the books. We do A-B test, but we don't A-B test small differences. We A-B test more very conceptual differences, Hmm. different images, you know, sometimes radically different background colors. Think about it more as the mood of a cover. Is this a dark mood, cheery mood? Colors convey a lot of uh, information. And so you don't always want the cover that gets the most attention, you know, the equivalent of posting kittens on Instagram. (laughs) You know, you get cat lovers. You don't get necessarily book readers. So you have to have an appropriate cover. And that can be tested very well. We can have covers that really get people excited and click through. And then afterwards they said, what did I get here? I expected something totally different. Mm. So covers should not be misleading. And that's one of the mistakes we sometimes see in the industry. I I can imagine that for many publishers, gathering and analyzing data like this might seem expensive, given the kind of money they're used to spending on data gathering, if any. How do you think about the costs and benefits of doing this? And how do publishers choose which books to subject to this kind of research? The costs are not that high. Of course, what is not high for a big publisher may be high for a tiny, tiny, tiny publisher. Mm. I mean, when we are testing with 500 to 800 readers, the cost runs, depending on the sophistication of the test, between about 500 pounds uh, 950 pounds at the high end. So it's not the world, especially what a test of 500 or 100 or 1,000 pounds relative to a 50,000, 60,000 marketing budget. It's tiny, mm-hmm. but not every book comes in for testing because sometimes they're absolutely sure this will be a bestseller and they don't bother. We tend to get books where there's division in the publishers or the typical Monday meeting, editorial and marketing can't agree or everyone has a different opinion and the like. It comes in for testing and find it out or they're not quite sure who the right audience is or they have published a few books. It's going okay, but should actually go be doing better and they ask themselves, who exactly is the audience? Can you give us a bit more information who is reading this book and who we should be targeting? Or if the book sales are not ideal, is it the content? Are we doing something wrong? Or is there something we could improve? So, And I think it's not necessarily the, the monetary cost that's the biggest barrier. People require time to read. So mm-hmm. a test of this nature does take 
five, six, seven weeks. So right. it has to be done early enough so that you can still act on the data. So if your manuscript is very late or just comes in very shortly before publication date, if you don't have the time to react, and the test doesn't make sense, unfortunately. I wish we could change that, but we can't <laughs> force readers, 600 readers, to all read in 48 hours. It's unrealistic. <laughs> it, would, it would not be a, a fair assessment of their interest in the book, I suppose. I really like that your readers get to make a conscious choice to share their reading data with you in return for the free books. Uh, and it seems to me that if our data is kind of that valuable, that we can get books for it, we should be able to use it like currency deliberately rather than have it hoovered up and used without our knowledge. How do you think about the ethics of the data gathering? So we started ironically in Germany, despite being a British company, and Germany has some of the toughest rules, but also most skeptical users. And people said it wouldn't work, and it worked quite well. Hmm. One item is we were very open and very transparent about what we were doing. We made it very easy, including when you submitted the data, it said, thank you. And the readers thought it was kind of like the book saying thank you to them. So we mm -hmm. very accidentally gamified it a little bit without having designed it that way. And we discovered readers really liked publishers and authors listening to them and paying attention. So this kind of feedback loop was important. But we also gave readers the access to their own reading data. And it is eye-opening to see how you actually read a book sometimes, how many more pauses and interruptions there are. So a little bit of the Fitbit for ebook element there. Mm. But above all, you use the data only to inform certain decisions and you don't take it and sell it now to third parties and it's mm. now used to marketing you. Uh, totally unrelated things. I think that is the really creepy element of data use. And in our case, because we're always commissioned by one publisher, it means the competitor couldn't get the data, which surprised a lot of publishers who are used to the Nielsen model that they can look up all the competitor data. But that's <laughs> not how it works in our case. We do market studies for one publishers, at least in the classical settings. With uh, the samples, it's a little bit more like you can also see market trends and more general stuff. But we've always had a philosophy, the data we collect is immediately within this constrained use. and We do not broker data into other industries or through brokers and similar because you're really totally dependent on the trust of the readers. Mm. And if you're consistent with that and transparent, then I think readers are also willing to share the data with you and see the benefit. But you really have to be, I think, consistent and transparent about how the data is used mm. and what is the benefit to the end user too. Yeah, sure. And then when we talk about data and Amazon collecting presumably a vast amount of data through Kindle that no one has access to at all, and they have their own publishing imprints as well, which must give those publishing imprints an enormous advantage. Do you See yourselves as a way to let publishers compete with Amazon's growing power in publishing? Um, well, yes or no. What shocks a lot of publishers is how good our relationship with Amazon is. Sure. We have in the background often shared some of our findings, and they've told us if we were right or not, or said, look here closely. So it helped us validate some of the trends we've seen. 
If you sit inside Amazon, you have a very strong infosec department. There are some things you can't do because the colleagues on the other side of the wall will not let you. There is not so much data mm-hmm. access inside Amazon as some people might imagine. Amazon Interesting. does pay attention to privacy even inside their own company. Think about Kindle Unlimited where they determine book finished or not based on last position read. So they used a shortcut, a very easy to obtain signal, which is something also we do in our cloud reader. Where did you, what was the last position you read? But that's not a good proxy for how much you read or what you have gone through. And so that was massively abused by some spammers when they found it out. Hmm. Now in its own publishing, Amazon does look very much at certain kinds of data. So Amazon's equivalent to our velocity data is something they look at very, very heavily. Um, Also, completion rate is something they look at a lot. They don't use our surveys, so they don't have the kind of survey data we have. So Mm -hmm. they are reliant on the same completion rate and velocity as key parameters. Those are the most critical observational parameters you can collect. And they use that to assess who really gets high engagement. So not how high are the sales or how high are the downloads. Are people really engaging with that offer? And they're using that data to inform their own decisions what to publish. But when they take on an offer, they also think differently to how trade publishers think. They're not thinking how many books would this sell across the whole industry because it's difficult for them to sell into Barnes & Noble or similar. Mm. They say, who is the audience? Who is the typical user I have on Amazon who regularly buys from me, who buys from me ebooks? And how many units will I be able to sell to this captive audience I have? So they are quite modest sometimes with their advances and they base all their calculations on kind of their own captive audience. Will this sell to this audience? So they're incredibly audience oriented Mm. and it's interesting to observe that a lot of the industry the trade industry is now moving in a similar direction who is the audience i as a publisher can reach where do i have a contact where do i have a mailing list where i have the contact through booksellers can i reach that audience and what should i be publishing towards that audience but they don't have the same feedback loops yet. They only have sales, whereas Amazon really looks at engagement data. Mm. And there we are trying to help publishers move more closely towards that goal. But there is also some resistance because publishing has grown up with, as long as it sells, that's all that matters. Mm. And then as we begin to wrap up, you've you had to evolve Jellybooks, as you've said, constantly over the last 10 years as any of us growing businesses have to. What do you think is evolving right now? What do you feel is, is the next evolution? And what are the most interesting developments you think in publishing right now that, that are on your radar? Oh my, there are quite a few from our point of view. Audiobook is rising and rising and rising, and we've su- started supporting audiobook data collection, and snippets and similar. We've gone heavily into illustrated books as well. Hmm. Um, On the client side, we see a lot of consolidation, both among publishers, also uh, fewer suppliers. So the book, the industry is consolidating across every axis imaginable at the moment. 
it is globalizing. HarperCollins was probably the first to say, I want to be everywhere. And we're seeing that across retailing, we already saw it, Kobo, Amazon, Apple, all global companies and publishing is starting to look more globally as opposed to the old territorial approach mm. where Ireland, UK, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand were one, of this, one thing, whereas you should say, I'm looking at English language. So mm. that is gradually changing. Uh, much more direct selling by publishers, which used to be total taboo. Now they sell more direct. Mm. Until a year ago, I would have said publishers are only focused on creating demand themselves. And that was already a big leap. But now we are also seeing potentially more direct selling because of the pandemic. Interesting. Um, if the pandemic has taught us anything is just how resilient reading and publishing actually is. It's come through the pandemic extremely well. And as I like to jokes, reading is a very socially distanced activity. <laughs> at the extreme end, if we look at Inkit, WhatsApp and others, we are seeing this tendency of thinking more about millennial users and how to potentially build in chat functionality overlaid on books and think about how some of these things are merging. Interactive books have never taken off or the enhanced book. Mm. And about 10 years ago, when the two of us got started, a company called Weedmill was around from Berlin mm. who were all about social reading. You know, Facebook was big, <laughs> rising and still had a positive uh, aura at the time. And people thought reading would be social. And it wasn't. Mm. Reading has never been really social in that sense. But with the rise of Instagram and WhatsApp, I think we are starting to see now new influences that are creeping into publishing. And we're seeing some of the first publishers rethinking, especially for the young reader, so young adult and up to 25, 30, how are they being shaped differently and how do conversations and communications around books happen and how do these things interflow? I don't see any influence of say virtual reality or gaming into publishing there has been no trend of that nature that has really been persistent i think mm. but i think the way we interact with online is starting to creep into the young segments and pub some publishers especially at the children's and young adult book end are starting to look as different to trade publishing as an academic or professional publisher is to trade publishing. So we are seeing a bit of a cleavage there. Sure. Uh, and that's a relatively newer trend I've seen in the last year or two. Um, we still haven't ourselves fully figured it out. So there's a new frontier about hmm. to happen. And I think we always think of publishing as uniform and very, very conservative, and it is conservative. But within the spectrum of publishing, you have people who are much more willing to take risks versus others who are generally hyper-conservative. And I think yeah. in recent months, we've seen those differences become much more pronounced. Yeah, just when I feel like we're beginning to figure out this publishing business, an entirely new vista opens up uh, and we seem to start all over again. Andrew, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for listening. Please make sure you subscribe and it would be such a help if you'd tell a friend about the show. Also, don't forget to send us your own bookmaking topics and conundrums at howbooksaremade.com where I'll also post links to things we talked about today. 
How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in mostly sunny Cape Town, South Africa.